Executive Breakthroughs Podcast with your host, Jason Troy, executive coach and best-selling author. Get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight, nine, and ten-figure businesses, hire, manage, and develop A-level talent, create a culture to skyrocket success, build an extraordinary network out of influencers, and so much more. Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. My guest today is Dave Will, and he is starting a new company, Prop Fuel. He's a serial entrepreneur. And in today's episode, he shares about how he came off his rock bottom moments, built his company, sold it, and insights on how to build your culture, how to motivate people, and really get the most value out of your organization. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. So I have a fantastic guest on the show today, Dave Will, a serial entrepreneur starting a new company, PropFuel, which we'll get into later, and he's been an EO and building relationships is what he does well, and I've researched you a lot and found amazing things and great insights, and I've actually learned quite a bit about being an entrepreneur and living in the startup world and exiting, so uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, of course, thanks. That's, That's awfully nice. Well, it's true. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, kind of your family, because I think it's great to get people insights and where you came from so they can really understand your journey. Yeah, I wish I had a a story about growing up in the plains of Africa or... uh, or in in squalder and you know living homeless i'm I'm thinking of tony robbins he's got some great stories i I don't have a great grow-up story although let me rephrase that i actually do have a great grow-up story it's something i really enjoyed my childhood was awesome you know we were lower middle class i grew up in kind of a nondescript part of connecticut uh always been a new england boy and um uh, my parents were were married for a very long time until my mother passed. Uh, what, did I, your parent, what did your parents do for a living? My mother was a teacher. My father was an engineer. Okay. My father was um, really is is still is a really smart guy, like really smart guy. And then he, uh, it's I must skip a generation because my kids are really smart too. My brother and I, we you know we we got solid B's in school but um and what did, when you were going to school is there anything that you loved or were passionate about like studying or figuring things out? i love the big cheese that's what we called it on a recess and it was uh-huh. this thing that looked like a saddle and I, I don't even know how to describe it i could probably draw a picture it was this weird geometrical shape it's called the big cheese that's what i loved in school so when it comes to what i loved in school it was not the reading it was not the writing and it wasn't the arithmetic. How's that? So that's, yeah, yeah I, I'm not an academic. You know, which is funny because at one point, I, I think it was when I was uh, actually, so I, I left college. I, I went a pretty traditional path. I left college, 
um, worked for a couple of years in big Fortune 500 companies, and then why did you start on that path? Just work because it was like it seemed to be the natural. That's what you're supposed to, to do, right? Right, exactly. Especially when your mom's a teacher and your dad's an engineer, yeah. and you grew up with this dream of one day making a hundred thousand dollars. You know, like if I could make a hundred thousand dollars in a career, that I, I I look at that and I think, oh my God, that's talk about shooting for the stars. You know, yeah. I did not have great aspirations of walking on the moon. You know, I grew up in it, everything about uh, my life and growing up. It was again, it was a phenomenal childhood. My parents, it, our family was wonderful. One of great vacations. Now, when I say that, we I didn't fly in an airplane till uh, late high school, I think, and that was a school trip. Um, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts, I was in the marching band, I wasn't a great athlete, I developed late in life, I was an average student. So I, I took an average path in life. You know, I worked for the big company. At I, SAP? No, not yet. That, that was a little later. So, so I, I went to college, I, I got a job at the Fortune 500. I, I got my MBA, uh, and, uh, I, uh, and now at that point, Interestingly enough, I thought, ooh, maybe maybe I should be a professor. Because now I'm getting a little cocky. I'm thinking I went to Penn State, you know, which is a top 25 business school, which is, it's I say it like that because it's funny. You, so you uh, thought about teaching. What about teaching turned you on or excited you? or? Oh, access to the gym, access to the, the like okay. walking around campus, just the, the freedom that you have it being a professor on campus, kind of defining your own career path. It wasn't the reading, writing, or arithmetic that turned me on. So it was, it was just, you know, I was young. I had all these strange per perspectives of how to create a career path. You know, so my career path was focused on what can I get out of it, as opposed to what can I dive into? You know, it's a totally different mentality. And I, I went down that path for a long time. Well, what changed your perspective and what seminal, pivotal event or person really made it all shift? Because obviously you've shifted gears in a big way from that thinking to where you are today. Yeah, it's um, it, it wasn't necessarily a person as much as it was uh, an, an event. And the event was, uh, I got fired. So I worked, you know, so again, I, I worked for Nielsen, Kraft General Foods, MBA, PricewaterhouseCoopers, traveling nonstop. So I had good jobs, like they were really good jobs. And I was making pretty good money. And then I didn't want to travel as much, so I found a, a, a niche uh, uh, boutique uh, doing systems integration stuff. Uh, by the way, yes, I worked for SAP for a very short period of time as an intern, uh, a summer intern in, in my MBA. Um, and working for the small boutique, it just so happened that uh, small boutiques don't do so well in a bubble, in, in when the bubble burst, yes. I should say. So this was back in 2000, 2001, when the technology okay. bubble burst. And so now they're, they're not getting the business they need. And so they, they kind of look and figure out where's our greatest return. I was making a little more money than I should for what I was bringing into the business. They did the absolute right thing. They fired me. And so I remember very clearly, 10.30 in the morning. This is 2001 in the spring. It was actually, so what is it, April? So it was uh, 
Um, I remember walking to the uh, pier in Boston, waiting for the ferry because it took a ferry in to downtown Boston from where I live. And I called my wife from the pier to let her know I was coming home. And I remember as soon as I heard her voice, I don't even think I said anything. I just burst into tears. I, 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 uh, I imagined her, and I think I could even hear our firstborn son, who's, who's 16 now, almost 17, and he was in her arms. I could hear him cooing, blabbering, talking about stuff. And she answered the phone, and I thought we had just moved into this new home in a somewhat affluent part of the South Shore of Boston. She wasn't working, and we had this baby. Shit, I just got fired. And so, in a, in a heartbeat, my whole plan crumbled. And uh, How are you feeling in that? Oh, Jesus, I was in tears. Um, in tears, but what caught, I mean, letting people down, did you think? Or oh, yeah, that everything. Uh, that's a great question. So, you know, they say that... Um, you feel like you were letting your wife down? Oh, yeah, my son, my, my nine-month-old son. My, my my wife, my father. Um, Why your father? Was it just... Well, they, they say that we're always trying to please our fathers. You know, that's that's something I read when I was... When we had... I have three boys. And as we're raising... Well, actually, I read this book called Raising Boys. And so as we're raising boys, one of the things I, I read, which rung true with me, is we're always trying to... No, no matter what stage of life we're in, we're always trying to impress our fathers. Um, my father's a great dad, is a great dad, and uh, there's nothing in particular he did that warrants me having to prove myself to him, but it's just something that, that I think we as young men and, and adults always strive to do. Um, whether you come from an abusive relationship with your father and wanted to prove to him that you're of value, or you come up from a loving relationship with your father and want to prove to him that he was right. Um, the latter is more true for me. But regardless, yeah, I felt like like um, I'd let other people down. I felt like I'd been exposed. Like uh, people knew see, you were a fraud. Now all of a sudden, you know, I'm I'm not what I what I always said I was going to be. I'm not I'm not valuable to this company. Did you feel like an imposter? Um, or just being exposed to people who just saw that you really couldn't do what you thought you could do. Or what, what? I I I so. Um, I, uh, I, I never I never felt like work was a part of who I was, right? Work was a place I went to. Work was something I did. Work was something I tried to get out of. Um, and work is something I wasn't very good at. Uh, so did I feel like an imposter? I don't know. I, I felt like, uh, like I lived for uh, before 9 in the morning and after 5 at night, you know? And even though I was, I was 30 years old, I wasn't a kid. You know, I was, I was 30 years old. You'd think by then I would have figured it out. I think most people do, actually. But I, I was... See, a lot of people reinventing themselves now at, you know, way later and different stages of their lives. So I think it's challenging because everything changes different points in what you want, where your trajectory is, what things matter to you from experiences yeah. in your life. And it, it's also possible that, I mean, I'd lived a very comfortable life. Didn't have a lot of hardship. You know, um, 
I didn't have, we didn't have a lot of wealth uh, compared to a lot of people I knew either. Um, but we had a very solid family. I had great experiences in life. Um, I was well educated. Uh, so, you know, I, so it, it, I needed a, something jarring. And this was something jarring. So what did you do from this moment? What did this moment propel? Oh, yeah. Did? So I went home and I trimmed the hedges. So that's, I mean, naturally, that's what anyone would do when sure. you get fired. So it's about noon. I'm home. I'm like, not really hungry. So, no sandwich. So what am I going to do? So I trimmed the hedges. So I remember, <laughs> so I remember going out and I got my weed whacker. And my wife, she doesn't know what to do. She's just kind of trying to be as positive as possible. And so I get the weed whacker and I think I was like three or four minutes in and I sliced my finger open. Just like my mind was not there. I was just in a haze and I'm weed whacking and, and it wasn't weed whacking, hedge, trimming the hedges. And in the blade from this thing trimming the hedges, like slices my finger and like, I got bone. I'm looking at bone on my finger. Granted, I could lose the finger and that would have been the greatest hardship in my life right at that point. So, uh, but we didn't, you know, so I asked my one inside, I said, hon, uh, I think I need, we need to go to the hospital. So we get in the car and again, we're new to town. So I said, uh, listen, I know there's South Shore Hospital. That's like 20 minutes away. Let's just go to this one I saw. It's not that big a deal. It's a, it's, it's a small hospital's fine. So we go to this place um, that's, we don't have to get on the highway, just kind of around town. I remember seeing the sign for, for this hospital. And so we take a left at the Dunkin' Donuts and we go down another 120 yards or so. And then on the left, there's this hospital we pull in, she goes into emergency and drops me off. And I go in like this and like, listen, I cut my finger, I might need, some stitches or something with this and she says oh that's that looks bad and she's like you should go to a hospital I'm like well where am i and she says you're you're at a psychiatric hospital <laughs> so that was my experience so that's what i did that's what i did when i got fired is i ended up going to a psychiatric hospital for the wrong reason but maybe it was the right place i don't know yeah. so ultimately uh i got a little scar that's about it um to really answer your question, uh, I tried to get another job. And I did, actually. I got, I got another job offer. And I remember this feeling. It's this really dark feeling. Like, it's, a, it's a feeling that uh, I'll, I'll have this feeling inside my, my head for the rest of my life. But in my heart, I remember thinking about this job. There's a commute into Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a tech company, cool company, cool job. Right, making about the same I was making in my last job. So the offer came through like within two weeks of getting fired. Sweet. So I'd even have a little severance and I mean, perfect, right? Yeah. I should take it. I just didn't want to. Like it was just another, it was, it was this point where I had hit this realization that it's just doing the wrong things, just doing the wrong things. And a friend of mine had come to me recently with another idea. How did you idea. figure that? I mean, is this, was just you're not passionate? You were just like, do I have to just do this another nine to five, quote unquote, job all over again? And like, cause Yeah, it, you know what it was? It, it was? A lot of fear, knowing that that they thought I was much more capable at doing what they needed done than I actually had confidence in. So going on the first day of the job, I mean, I sure, I could probably learn it. Uh, 
but I just didn't want to have a similar experience where you go into something with these people having expectations of something that you can deliver and that you just got to figure it out. You're just like, getting sick and tired of having to live up to these I was a great, I was a great chameleon. I, I did what I, I blended into what I was supposed Dave to be the doing. Chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I, I just give me a dark feeling without defining it. Just give you a dark feeling. When you have a dark feeling about something, generally you don't want to do it, right? Right. So, but we got to put food on the table. You know, we did not have a big savings account. So what'd you do? So a friend of mine came to me with, this is like with, right around the same period of time, a friend of mine came to me with, his name's Rick, came to me with um, this thing called web conferencing. And uh, back, this is back in 2001. Okay, so, so he came to his web conferencing and said, look, I have a relationship with someone. I think I can get us some licenses. And I know a ton of people that need this stuff. So we actually had this acronym. I can't remember the acronym it was, but, but it stood for... Um, the tired old sales executive. That wasn't exactly, but it was. But that was the person we were going after. Not to be negative, we weren't necessarily insulting this person, but that was our persona. That was God. our target audience. Was the the person that's tired, old, and generally in the sales area. And and by the way, old is relative. But uh, somebody was late in their career that oh. was, you know, typing with thumbs and fingers, and uh, this is pre-smartphone too. Um, and we wanted to hold their hand through this process, so they weren't going to just go buy WebEx. Um, and live meeting didn't exist yet, uh, uh, and go to meeting didn't exist yet. I don't think so. WebEx was the only major player out there, but we had licenses, and we just started selling these things, reselling them, and that over time evolved into the business that I sold 14 years later to private equity. Yeah, massive transition. But you massively pivoted, but you started out from nothing and got up and made these phone calls. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, a lot. Oh my God, all my time on the difficult phone. If you had never done anything like no, that. No, no, brother. Oh my God, no. For the first time ever, I made $40,000 my first year. So I, I was making enough to, to support a company. I mean, I, I was making enough to support a family in a new, a fairly affluent area when I got fired. Then I come down to making $40,000 a year, which is really difficult to live on. And again, yes. in this neighborhood with a baby and a wife who's not working, not to mention debt from my MBA. And I'm sure we had a car loan and all this other stuff that we had to pay. So, so you know, I was making 40000 the first year, and that was even debatable whether or not we could. And that was 40000 revenue. That wasn't like $40,000 uh, uh, profit. That was $40,000 in revenue, I think, we made the first year. So, Between you and your partner? Yeah, so he had a full-time job. So okay. he wasn't. So he, he wasn't. Didn't care about it, no, he was. Revenue. It was. It was fifty-fifty. I never thought about actually selling that business, and and I didn't really sell that business. It evolved and grew and turned into a different business, but this was the start. And the start was all about putting food on the table. We just needed some money to put on the table, and I didn't know how to run a business. But to to it wasn't hard in the way that it was something that I'd never done before. It was the. <laughs> It was the most amazing feeling because I would go down to my basement where I had a desk and a little window, you know, one of those basement windows, 
and there's a door going out to her backyard with a slope and um and I would I'd go down that basement and I wouldn't come up unless I had to go to the bathroom or I was hungry or it was dark I loved it I just loved it like immediately I would I just found, you found something you found that thing. I loved to do and and I don't know why really because I I didn't have this you know do you ever watch Silicon Valley uh, I've seen it a few times love this show Silicon Valley so they, they joke in Silicon Valley it's all about changing the world and what this technology can do to change the world I, I didn't have any perspective of how selling web conferencing to tired old sales executives was going to change the world uh, I, I didn't care for me it was more like a game we're just having fun you know, I was picking up the phone. I was having conversations with cool people, trying to get them to buy something I was selling. I was just having fun. And it was paying some of the bills. And uh, and I can't, I remember saying this for like seven or eight years that one day I might have to get a real job. But I said that for seven or eight years before I finally accepted, I guess this is a real job. Like, I guess I got a job here. And so anyway, no, it wasn't. There, of course, there were a lot of hard things in growing the business. Well, how did you take Going it the next to work? Because you were making forty grand, and then how did you get it from there to be like? Because oh, it was overnight, that. overnight success. No, it's it's just completely opposite. It was extremely slow. You was know? there a pivotal moment that kind of put you kind of to the, to the next level? Uh, did you sell? There was were, it a big deal that you sell, or is there something? There were a lot of um, there were a lot of transitions, right? So, um, and one of the things I, I heard you talk about is pivoting in the business. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That you were able to pivot the business and change it over time in order to make it mm -hmm. to what you eventually sold the company. And that's yeah, so I think that's the important thing. Whether it's a pivot or an adjustment or taking advantage of opportunities, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. I, I like the word pivot, which may be overused, especially in, in the tech in Silicon Valley. Sure. But instead of kind of moving in one direction, deciding that this is not at all who we are and switching to something else, that's a real pivot. But the I use the pivot in more of a you know forty five degree angle yeah, sort of pivot it, yeah, as opposed to a full ninety or one hundred eighty degree. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was constant. Con so there are two things I was constantly looking at in hindsight, and one was how do I make this more valuable? That was more later in the business, I should say. It wasn't early on where I was thinking about the value of the business, but how do I make this more valuable? was something ultimately that I asked myself just about every day. And there wasn't always an obvious answer. It was a mindset. But the thing I thought about with, especially early on, is what do I need to do to make sure that I'm here tomorrow? In other words, what do I need to do? What's, what, 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 uh, what, what demons are chasing me? And, and what am I chasing? So looking over my shoulder, what are the competitors doing? I've always liked looking at competitors. I know a lot of people say don't look at your competition. Um, I was I was a I was a competitive archer growing up, and I remember my coach telling me, uh, uh, I'd ask what what the closest guy's name was Duncan. Duncan was always real close to me, and uh, poor Duncan never won though. And I. Uh, um, and I remember asking, what was, what's Duncan got? What's his score? My coach said, don't worry about it. 
come on, I want to know what Duncan's got. And so ultimately I figured out, found out what Duncan had. And knowing that, I, I really liked it. So I like keeping an eye on the competition. So I'd always be watching the competition, figuring out, you know, how can I stay just ahead of them? And so that led to a lot of pivots. So one point of, uh, one, one uh, uh, milestone was when we went from web conferencing and helping organizations run successful meetings to creating an alliance, I'll say, because Walmart didn't become our customer, but Walmart was kind of a strategic partner of ours where we would reach out to their supplier base. They have 50,000 suppliers. So supplier being people that put stuff on their shelves. So the manufacturers of paper, of equipment, of glasses, of pencils, of anything you see in this room that they sell at Walmart, those yes. are suppliers. And so Procter & Gamble and, and Polaroid and Ocean Spray and all of these organizations that sell stuff at Walmart, those became our customer base because they were the ones interested in learning more about Walmart's um, inventory management software called Retail Link. And so we created the online version of something that already existed, which was Retail Link User Group. And again, this is something my partner Rick brought to the table. He had experience, he was working in that industry, had knowledge of this. So Rick brought us into this world of, of creating an, a digital version of this learning community, all right? So that concept of creating these courses online for 50,000 suppliers to test Because they were having a problem utilizing the system Walmart had yeah. to figure it out. Walmart was horrible at training. They did zero training. They said, look, you take this software. This is how you're going to save money because now you don't need to buy Nielsen data or IRI data. Take our software and give you all the data for free. For free, which is millions of dollars worth of data. So Walmart gives that to their suppliers and says, okay, now you have this data, now make it less expensive for us. And so, um, but nobody knew how to do that or how to manage the system. So there were experts in the industry. We tapped into their knowledge, put it into courses and started selling it. Interesting. So then uh, we had a couple other organizations pop up that said, hey, we kind of want to create a community like that, a community that we can create and sell content to. So I hired a developer contracted, didn't hire, contracted a developer to build a learning site very similar to the one we built with Retail Link. And um, and then another one. So now we got three or four, they're taking like six months each to build these things out. It was incredibly slow, not scalable at all. Yeah. And that's when ultimately we discovered the world of associations. So we went from the consumer goods, the tired old sales executive. We, we realized that that's fine, we're doing some business and we're growing gradually, but the opportunity for us now lay in the association world. And so we found associations, which are these organizations of members that have um, thousands of members and belong to an association and, 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 uh, and they are all craving knowledge about a certain subject area. So instead of building these one-off sites, I found another organization in this space that we partnered with and ultimately merged with to, um, to create a learning management system so that with a flick of a switch, instead of six months, with a flick of a switch, we could take what we're doing earlier and make it scalable. So now we had a learning management system and we got up to about 250 customers in a fairly short period of time. And I'd say if there was a hockey stick, 
it's more of a field hockey stick, I think. But anyway, it was if it was a if it was a hockey stick, that's the moment where we really found who we were. We found a niche, which is another real key to doing things well is finding a niche and focusing on that niche. But you that were determined and persevering and you pivoted along the way and because you stayed the course, you eventually found your hockey stick up. Yeah, it was a re- relentless forward motion is a is a mantra I subscribe to. And um, that's you find that's that with a lot. I mean, a lot of people probably, don't do relentless forward motion. A lot of that, people don't. And that have seems that to be a separating point for a lot of people is that relentless forward motion is what allows them eventually to break through and stay the course. Yeah. And, and find yeah. their, you know, because most entrepreneurs, like, it's not like they, you know, maybe some people get lucky and they do within the first year or two. But most people, when you talk the journey, it's it's you know, five, 10, 15 or more years where they're having their big moment that really took them up. People get tired. Yeah. People get tired and they just give up. But I think you found your passion and your purpose. And you also knew that if you just didn't work, you'd have to go back to that tired old nine to five job. That's part of it. Sometimes these fuels around us get us. There was never a question of of giving up though, like, and, and I don't even think of it as giving up. Well, I know, but other most, people might look at it like that, but. For most people, I think what happens is they get to a point where it's so tiring that they think, you know what, I'm gonna get much more personal reward out of going to work for Fidelity or State Street or, or this biotech so firm nice. or this other guy. They're gonna find more reward in that than they are in doing this. You know, I so over the course of the 14 years, I had two different partners, both of which I bought out at a certain point. My first partner, Rick, who I've mentioned many times, um, is still a very good friend of mine. And how did you decide to buy them out and approach them? Is just it went its course, and they weren't interested in anymore. So uh, I'll tell you each one. So with Rick. Uh, and it got to a point where it was no longer just dabbling and trying something, you know, with this $40,000 bringing in and we were two or three years into it, we were finding some traction. And it got to a point where I thought, you know, if we're going to move forward with this, if this is something that we're going to pursue, we've got to be all in. We've got to, we've really got to be all in. And so I, I asked him to join me. I, I actually quite the opposite of what happened. I asked him to come and be all in with me or not, one or the other. It was a, more or less an ultimatum saying, look, we've got to be in or out. And he, he understandably had a great career. Um, he, he's a little bit older than me and had, um, you know, he's looking at his pension, he's thinking about his future, he's making good money, he's got a steady job, he's enjoying it. This was a hobby for him. And uh, so he said, you know what, I think, I think I'm out. I got a daughter going to college. Um, so we came up with a reasonable price. I bought him out for, in hindsight, I laughed. At the time, it was the right amount. I bought him out for $17,000 and a laptop. So I, I let him keep the laptop, which I think he gave to his daughter going to college, and the $17,000 helped pay for the first year of college. And, uh, and he was happy, and I was happy. So now I'm the sole owner of the business at the time. Then I mentioned that we found another company and, and married that company. And at that point, uh, we're both about the same size uh, um, at the time. And um, 
we had a, an advisor that we trusted value the businesses, and because mine was valued and a little more profitable, I got the majority of the shares. Got it. So, which is relevant to the story. So, I got. I, I think I was at sixty-eight percent. My partner was at thirty-two percent, and um, so three or four years in to that relationship. Um, he came to me at a conference. I remember we, uh, we were in the middle of a conference in D.C. for associations, and he came to me. really surprised me when he says, yeah, you know what? I'm tired. You know, I, I, to be honest, I, I'm not a majority shareholder or an equal shareholder. And I just want to do something fun for me again. So he, was, he stopped having fun. For, so again, he didn't quit. He, what happened is he just found a greater return doing something different. So it, it, maybe it's semantics. I don't consider that quitting. I consider that um, a, a personal pivot, right? So he decided to leave, and we found a, mutual, a mutually agreeable um, value for his shares, and I bought him out. Now, I didn't expect. I had every intent of selling the business at some point, uh, as did he. Um, Neither one of us expected it to happen that soon, but I created a five-year plan from that point with my executive team and said, here's where, when I say I created it, we had some help from the outside. It was, it was a phenomenal process, um, but we created this vision. It was, it was actually a three-year vision. But was that Prometheus? Yeah, 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 Prometheus it was called. And uh, we, we used a gentleman named Kyle Howland uh, what is that Prometheus? I mean, like, uh, he's with the core group, by the way. So it's he was incredibly helpful. Um, so I'll, yeah, let me come back to that a second. So we created a three-year vision, a very, very clear vision of where we wanted to be as an executive team. And then we thought, you know what? When we hit that goal, when we hit that, when we're there, when we're at that, that vision, we're going to essentially open our minds to the thought of selling. So what that meant, I didn't really know yet, but we're going to prepare the business for sale and then we're going to sell. So that was very, very, I was very transparent with my executive team about the selling part. I don't think I was as transparent with our employees about our goal to sell um, because there's a lot of options that, that, that you could have presented right. myself yeah. at that point. But, um, and it happened much quicker. So we ended up selling... Um, two years into that three-year vision. So instead of five years, it was two years later that we ended up do you, selling the business. Do you think that having that vision helped you sell the business? Absolutely. Oh my God, absolutely. So, so that was a key piece of it was actually having a crystal clear picture of where you wanted to go. And then what happened is you sped up the process because mm -hmm. everyone was aligned to where you were headed together. Oh yeah. So, so at this point, I'm all in on culture. Like culture to me is an incredibly important part of the business. Well, what does culture mean to you? Because people uh, say that. And, um, so culture, I, I'm going to steal this from Brian Halligan, who is the founder of HubSpot, one of the two founders of HubSpot. And uh, HubSpot is a marketing automation platform. Uh, they've gone in the past 12 or 13 years, 12 years, I think, to a $2 billion value, billion dollar valuation. Uh, they're a public company. So he's done a great job. And one of his mentors described culture as the way people make decisions when you're not in the room. So, um, yeah, so to me, culture is this, this, uh, this, this guiding force that helps people behave the way 
they should. And how did you create that guiding force? So there's what what concrete steps did you take in order? So there's three elements to creating a great culture. Okay. One is uh, motivation finding the right motivation for your people. And it's actually a pretty generic formula, I think. Second thing, I'll get into that in a second. The second thing is is trust. That's really, really hard. Because you're bringing people in, you don't know them. Yes. And now you gotta trust them. That's hard. And then you have uh, cadence. And cadence is a word I like to use uh, because I think cadence leads to habit. Uh, habit is, uh, it could be good or bad, but cadence is something you actually can do to maintain good habits. So that's why I like the word cadence better than forming habits or patterns. Um, so in looking at motivation, if you can create an environment and a culture, I'm not talking about hats. Um, prop fuel. So I'm not talking about hats with the prop fuel logo, or I'm not talking about pens and pads. Actually, so let me put, put a little interlude in here. One of the few people that ever left my company, and I say that purposely, and it sounds a little arrogant, but not a lot of people left our company. We had very, very low attrition. But one of the people that left, left because she wasn't into her career. She was into making money so she could pay for school. Her passion, and, and I know this because she came to me and said, I'm struggling. I, I, I like it here. I love the people I work with, but I need to make more money. I said, well, why? What's going on? And she's like, well, because I need to pay for school. That's where I want to go. And, uh, I, and she said, and, and my, my, the last company I worked for is inviting me back and they're paying me more money. And I encourage, I said, you should go. Because you're not here to form a career. You're not here to create a great life for yourself. You're here to make money to pay for college. Go, take that career bank it and go to college as quickly as you can. And so she called me back two or three months later, she sent me an email saying, so can you tell me where you get your hats and pens and belts and bags and all that stuff? Because I'm trying to teach my, my bosses how to create a great culture. And I didn't even know where to start. It was so I, I wrote her back in this email saying, I can give you those links and those phone numbers. But the perks that you're talking about are not going to create a great culture. So going back to motivation, what creates motivation is not the extrinsic stuff, right? So Dan Pink has this great video on what motivates people. And I subscribe to a lot of what he says. For me, motivation often is confused with money. So how much money do we need to dangle in front of people? Or or carrots, even a trip somewhere, you know, giving people a trip or uh, bonuses. And they're nice. They really are nice, but they don't. Act. Science proves, history shows yes. that it doesn't drive. It's about what happens inside. It doesn't drive greater. Yeah, it doesn't drive greater success. So, so or greater results. So, it, it's about the intrinsic. So, how did you create that vision, uh, uh, purpose, and values? So, vision, purpose, and values are what drive people far more than money. People need money. Right, but vision, purpose, and values are what drive people to come to work. Ivan Chernard, I think, I, I hope I said his name right, he's the Patagonia founder, he has this great quote in his book, Let My People Go Surfing. So in the 60s, in the early 70s, he was building Patagonia, and they made parts and pieces for climbing, gear. That's all he made. 
he actually fell into clothing. He didn't love it, but he fell into clothing because that's what paid the bills so he could go climb more. He had this book called Let My People Go Surfing. And he described as they were finding success, as they were getting bigger, he said, I knew we needed to get bigger and I knew we needed to grow, but he still knew how important it was for his people to come to work on the balls of their feet, climbing the stairs two at a time. So that's the passion. That's the motivation. How do you get people coming to work on the balls of the feet, climbing the stairs two at a time? And I, I get chills every time I say that. I just got this little chill saying it. But uh, uh, to me, that's what drives, that's a big part of what drives growing a business. And so the way you get people to come to work on the balls of their feet, climbing the stairs two at a time, is from the inside. And if you can create a vision, and that's where Prometheus for us came into play. Prometheus was just the name of the process that Kyle Howland from the core group brought us through. Uh, and I can describe that in a little bit of detail. Um, I'll put links in the show notes for people so they can figure yeah, out. Yeah, so, so the core group is, is uh, I think, probably the corgroup.com. I can, we can figure that out. But, um, um, but so the Prometheus is what helped us create this crystal clear vision crystal clear with 12 descriptors is what they call it all the way from yes finance you want to talk about your financial goals that is far from the vision too many people say oh we want to get to 100 million or we want to get to 50 million or we want to get to 20 million in profit uh that's cool that's a great metric yeah but it's not going to drive people from the inside uh, so, so although finance is a part of it, there's uh, there's the corporate citizenship, there's the the philanthropy, there's the outsider perspective, the insider perspective. There's twelve of these elements that define what your organization really looks like now, and in three years from now, and then how you get there. So it's very similar to traction. It's similar to Rockefeller habits. You know, so there's all these methodologies that help yes. you see something and then figure out a path to get there. So vision. And then whatever one you use is cool. You know, whether it's the core group or traction or, or Rockefeller habits, doesn't matter. It really yes. doesn't. We found great success with Kyle. The second piece of that is, uh, is the, the uh, mission. So this is where purpose comes into play. I actually prefer the word purpose, but purpose is the thing that drives you. It's the reason you get up in the morning. And that, that comes through stories, that comes from taking what you do and how it's actually changing people's lives. Because everything we do, every business we're in, no matter what it is, you are improving people's lives or else there's no value to what you're doing. Now, there's probably some exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, even, I mentioned Walmart earlier. A lot of people love to hate Walmart. Walmart is actually reducing the average income or the average spend on groceries by a couple thousand dollars, something like $1,800 or $2,200 per year for the average household income. Do you know how important that is to middle America to save $2,000 a year on groceries? That's a huge impact. Not only that, but they're doing when there's major uh, 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 worldly events like a hurricane. They are there on the scene with, yes. and, and they actually know what supplies their stores run out of first. So boom, they give the Red Cross the water, the toilet paper, the, the band-aids, whatever people need in a major issue. They're on it far before any nonprofit or any, any governmental organization. So my little soapbox when people like to bash Walmart as I bring those two things up. 
So having said that, every organization has a purpose and it's our job as leaders of those organizations to, to be the megaphone and to, to help did people that work for us. Did you have a statement that you gave people? Um, yeah, we did. It, was, it, it wasn't as important as the stories that Got supported it. it. So the story... I mean, the purpose statement, if you just say a purpose statement, it kind of sounds like bullshit. It sounds like... Um, yeah, you got to have the stories behind it to make yeah, it. Yeah. So it, what, what about the values? Cause I okay, so then the, there's the values piece of it, which again, alone can seem like bullshit. It's, it's, you have to it, live it. You values. really have to live it. Not just live it, but you need to constantly talk about it. You need to constantly bring it into your stories. You need to iterate it. You need to create passion. For me, the values didn't come from me. The values came from our employees. And we had a process. It's probably not worth going into here, but we had a process how we developed and came up with our values by looking at the employees that epitomized our company. And by describing them, we created who we all wanted to be. So how did you do the trust part of it? <laughs> so the trust piece of it is is not about, I trust you to pay me back for that lunch I bought you the other day. Um, the trust piece of it comes from, as a leader or a manager for that 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 part um it, it comes from trusting that uh, that you're going to deliver on something that i asked you to deliver on let me be more specific oftentimes we give somebody an important job and the more important it is the more we look over the shoulder and the more important it is the more likely we are to actually kind of take what they're doing and, and now we grab the pen for a second and we're just marking things up and then we give the pen back but then we take the pen and the paper and now we're now they're watching us do it and oftentimes we want to get involved in the most important piece of our business. The trust comes from you giving things to people that are really important to the business and letting them run with it. Got it. And here's, here's the key, and this is the really hard part, is how do you let them run with it even though they're doing it differently than you would do it? The, only, the rule I had for myself and our executive team was we can only interfere with people's processes and, and their methodologies and what they're doing if it's going to hurt the business. It's not going to hurt the business. Just because we think we could do it better, that's not for us to mess with. We need to trust that people are taking it where they need to take it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't help people improve. It doesn't mean you don't coach yeah. your employees. What it means is you trust your employees to do the job. Okay, I want to talk to you about exiting the business. How did you ultimately and how would you advise someone to figure out how do you exit a business because the question people often says well when do i sell right like how do you come to that conclusion um or how would you advise someone else to do it uh, so oftentimes i don't know so i'll tell you about my experience as opposed to telling other people how to how they should do it because I, I don't know there's so many scenarios and how people want to exit a business whether you're retiring or weathering whether it's a family business or or whether you're sick or whether the business is failing or whether the business is skyrocketing you know so there's so many different scenarios i can only tell you about my experience okay. my experience was one where um i belonged to a space we had a great technology company that was doing well it wasn't. It wasn't like off the charts, making hundreds of millions. And I heard of dollars. you say that you saw you saw the future, and you at that point there wasn't as much upside. 
or you didn't see it happening and growing at the rate that it had been? Was it? No, I, actually, on the contrary, I think our business was was really healthy. Like we we could have taken our business to some great heights. I, I believe. Okay. In fact, we made a bunch of transitions where we went from being a services oriented business to a SaaS software oriented business. We became uh, there was a, we went from being project oriented uh, revenue to and. Uh, to being um, recurring revenue, monthly recurring revenue. Yes. We had long-term contracts. It was month, okay. It's a long-term monthly recurring revenue contracts with our with our uh, customers. So we were creating. We had uh, standardized processes. Were incredibly scalable at this point. We could double the business with very few additional people. So we had some really, really. We had a bright future. Very, very bright future for the business. Which actually puts you in a great position to sell. Well, yes. So, so what happened is the industry we were in was becoming noticed by money. So now private equity is is coming into our space, and I noticed they had bought up a couple of companies. Not a lot, but there's a little activity going on in our space. And so what's happening is a lot of the bigger uh, entities um, are seeing an opportunity in a small community, associations, again, niche. If, 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 if you have a niche in a specific area, you're going to be strong in that area. We weren't trying to be everything to corporations. We were focused on associations. So when the money was coming in, I started to get more and more phone calls. We're always getting phone calls every now and then from people just fishing for businesses. Yeah. Um, but I started to get some phone calls from private equity firms that knew the businesses in our space and truly knew us. Which surprised me because most of the phone calls claim to know you. Oh, we've been watching you. We've seen your site. And, but these guys actually knew the businesses and talked to the businesses in our space. So I knew there was something going on. So I entertained some conversations with multiple private equity firms in a certain point. We had a couple offers for our business. Now, the offers, uh, it became very clear that we had good software. But what attracted the private equity firms was the culture of our businesses, the way our customers talked about us, and it was the way the uh, our our um, our reputation. Uh, it was our reputation in the market, which comes a big part comes from the culture of the organization. So, um, so they confronted me. Now at this point, I had the choice of finding a broker, managing it on my own. Or working with a with a lawyer, we had I had a lawyer that I worked with for quite some time. I had a great deal of faith in him. I still do. He's helped me with Prop Fuel, our new company as well. Um, uh, and so he became my trusted advisor. Uh, I had debated bringing in a broker to help, or an investment banker to help navigate and help us. Uh, 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 benefit from the deal more but there was no point where I felt I wasn't getting what we needed so I turned down the first couple offers because they simply weren't what I felt the they did, didn't match the future of the business like I said the business is doing awesome we're doing great so but they kept coming back with more offers so at a certain point there's a there, there becomes this point where the the amount of money you're being offered and the opportunity for your people and the opportunity for the entity the organization is uh, far better under that management than it is under our management got it so money was a piece of it a big piece of it don't get me wrong uh but a requirement 
was a bright future for our customers, a bright future for our employees, and therefore a bright future for the business. So that's how I made the decision. And um, and you sold the business. And yeah. I want to get into this sort of quickly. <clears throat> a few minutes remaining. Is that you sold the business, and then you know how did you get to Prop Fuel from there? Um, yeah, so I sold the business. I worked for the company, the acquiring company, for a period of time, and um, I, I think I, there, it, it got to a point where both I was grateful to step out, and I think the company is probably grateful to have me step out. Um, uh, because there's bumps along the way, you know, yeah. it, no matter how good a cultural fit it is, it's never the same culture as the one you've created in your organization. That's, that's difficult. Um, I had no problem, by the way, selling the business. I hear it from a lot of people. It's a sad thing where it's this personal thing. For me, it was like dropping a kid off at college. You know, there's some, uh, sentiment it's not like I'm a robot. There's some sentiment, but it's like this joy of seeing your something yes. you created thrive. So that's how I felt about it. So then uh, uh, we were talking about this earlier when, when we're setting up for this. But uh, then I left uh, the company and I just started saying yes to everything because I thought I'm free. Like I can do everything I've always wanted to do. First thing I did is I watched The Godfather which was a movie I'd never seen, and that's a long movie. Three parts, lots of lots of downtime on the couch. It took me like three weeks to watch those 10 hours. Uh, so that was the first thing I did. Um, I'm still working on reading Anne Rand uh, Atlas Shrugged. That was another thing I wanted to do after I sold the business. Um, and I wanted to clean my basement. I haven't gotten to that yet either. But I said yes to everything. And somehow, I got really busy. And I don't know what I was doing. Like, I don't know. I didn't have that purpose. I, I, I was no longer focused on that one major goal. And so I was kind of running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And I was okay with it. I wasn't sad. I wasn't depressed or anything. But you didn't have that one thing like you had in the past. So you needed to have, that, have one that one thing purpose. that... Yeah. Again. So how'd you come up with this? So, so I, I, there were a bunch of ideas. You know, I, I went from... I actually never had interest in writing a book. I know a lot of people talk about writing a book. I know a lot of people talk about consulting or coaching. Didn't want to do that either. I thought about the incubator idea of, of creating funds. I, I initially thought about doing it with kids in high school. Um, I thought about doing it with kids in college. And then I thought about maybe just organizing a collection of, in, of investors, so creating a fund. Sure. And again, none of those got me as excited as when I'd be sitting down with a buddy over a beer talking about an idea and bringing it to market. So it, it con I concluded that I needed to grow another business for two reasons. One, is it what got, it's what got me turned on, number one. Number two, is I kind of wanted to prove to myself that the first one wasn't a hoax, that it wasn't a... It wasn't a hoax. Yeah. I wanted to... I, I, I still need to prove to myself that, that the first sale wasn't um, just an accident. Gotcha. So I struggle in calling myself a serial entrepreneur. I don't, I don't use that term to describe myself oftentimes because I have yet to become a serial entrepreneur. But... But um, so so ultimately, after a lot of different ideas, I mean, tons of them, tons of ideas, and I would write them down in Evernote. And I, so I have lists in Evernote of business ideas, and I take one, I play with it for a month. And then either most of them just at some point you hit a wall. Every business hits a wall with the idea. And some of them I figure so what, what out I how to burst through, and some I couldn't. So, so, so prop fuel. 
So Prop Fuel came from this concept of creating a great culture. And it's what we did really well at, at my last company. And what I really enjoyed at the last company was the culture piece of it. One of the things we did in that culture piece to, to, so that I could understand what was going on in the heads of my employees and so that I could get that feedback from them on a regular routine and a cadence. This is one of the things that I yep. think builds a great culture is creating a cadence. Reaching out to my employees, giving them an opportunity to pat each other on the back, number one, so recognition, and number two, an opportunity to give me some feedback on what's going on out there in the field, what's going on when you're talking to your customers. So we had this weekly uh, survey, for lack of a better word, that went out to our, to, our, to our employees asking them those two things, are you happy in your job? And what, what, I mean, generally opening the door to what can we do to support you better in your job. And number two is who do you want to give, give recognition to? And uh, or who do you want to nominate? We have this peach of the week, this employee of the week. And so who do you want to nominate for that role? So every week in our company meeting, we take the last five minutes, we go through this stuff. If somebody wanted a, a uh, what do you, an exercise ball to sit on, we'd buy them an exercise ball on Amazon. If somebody wanted a stand-up desk, we'd buy them a stand-up desk. And those are the kind of things people wanted to make their jobs yep. better. So this is the feedback and this is the recognition that drove the impetus behind Propule. So now think about Yvonne's quote, people coming to work on the balls of the feet, climbing yep. the stairs two at a time. Think about this other um, stat I learned that only 13% of the people in the world love their job. 13%. I fell in the 87% before, yes. before I got fired. Definitely. And as soon as I figured out what I really enjoyed, I became part of that 13%. So I wanted people working for me to be a part of that 13% of people that love their job. And the first step to doing that well, second step. The first step is creating a vision, purpose, and values. The second step is allowing them a chance to reward and recognize each other intrinsically. And, the, and then the other part is figuring out what's going on in their heads. What are they doing? And so that's what we did with PropFuel. PropFuel is a super inexpensive way for entrepreneurs of small businesses, you know, 10 to 100 employees, to understand what's going on in in the heads of their employees and to give them a chance on a weekly basis to give recognition to each other. It's a great, super, super simple, easy to use software and it's like 50 or 100 bucks depending on the size of your company. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. So where can people find more about you and the business? So propfuel.com, P-R-O-P-F-U-E-L. So propfuel.com. Uh, you can find me at Dave at propfuel.com. That's a that's probably the best way to reach me is via email. Okay, beautiful. Well, thanks a lot for joining us um, on another show of Executive Breakthroughs. It's been fantastic having Dave here show us, share with us all his insights and things that happened, and we'll have a lot of things in the show notes and probably some fun surprises as well. So watch out for that. Fun surprises, Jason. Yes. Thank you so much. This thanks is really for fun. Thanks having me on the show.